Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures high yield account. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI endeavors reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Samzell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Do we know which way we're headed? Markets don't believe the Fed. The U.S. isn't sure about paying all those bills that it's racked up. And earnings, well, earnings are just all over the place. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David West. This week's special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on a Fed sending mixed signals. I think the Fed's doing a good job of portraying substantial uncertainty in uh, the economy. And Rashir Sharma of Rockefeller International on whether India is finally coming into its own for investors. This is a country that has consistently disappointed the optimists and the pessimists. It was a week of contradictions. The Federal Reserve hiked rates another 25 basis points and warned that more is coming. We continue to anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate in order to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. Whatever Chair Powell said, the markets apparently heard only that things may be getting better. I think there are opportunities for this rally to go longer and higher than you would expect. While the European Central Bank and the Bank of England continue to play catch-up with both raising rates the expected 50 basis points. We know that we have ground to cover 
We know that we are not done. President Biden met with Speaker McCarthy at the White House, and afterward they agreed only on continuing to talk, with no resolution in sight of the debt ceiling dilemma. My role right now is to make sure we have a sensible, responsible ability to raise the debt ceiling, but not continue this runaway spending. Earnings were all over the place, with Snap selling off while Meta surprised to the upside. It is a good sign that both daily active users and monthly active users for a platform like Facebook that is, you know, quite, quite old in uh, social network terms is still gaining. Caterpillar missed on profits while GM scored big. Where we see um, consumer demand for our vehicles at our price points is, is really strong. We just need to make sure we get production uh, up to be able to meet that demand. But over in India, the Adani conglomerate had bigger problems than just earnings as it tried to stabilize with a stock offer after being hit hard by a short seller, only to have to cancel the offering as the company lost over $100 billion in market value. It's all about debt. I mean, the, the company and its associates are heavily in debt, and that's what sort of scared us away. And then came Friday, with U.S. jobs numbers coming in far above what anyone had predicted, adding 517,000 new jobs to an already tight market, dropping the unemployment rate to 3.4 percent, which drove bond yields up, with the yield on the 10-year adding 13 basis points on Friday alone, but remaining nearly flat for the week overall, ending up at 3.52. While the S&P 500 climbed 1.6 percent over the week, and the Nasdaq gained a robust 3.3 percent. Thanks to a very busy week in the markets. We welcome now Bob Michael. He's J.P. Morgan Asset Management Head of Global Fixed Income Currency and Commodities and Aaron Brown, PIMCO Portfolio Manager for Multi-Asset Strategies. Welcome both of you for being back with us. Aaron, I'll start with you. This was a very busy week. Uh, the markets were not always clear about what they thought. What did you make of what happened over the course of the week, in particular those jobs numbers? I think that the jobs numbers came well above consensus expectations and certainly underpinned the fact that the economy is not in a recession right now, that job growth still remains quite strong and the labor market is still quite tight. And it probably also underscores the fact that the Fed has more work to do with respect to you know, keeping rates in restrictive territory. The Fed has already indicated that they're likely hike in at least an additional time, one time in March. And then after that, I think, you know, certainly there's scope for the Fed to potentially hike an additional one time or pause there. But in either case, the Fed will likely not cut rates for an extended period, continue to remain restrictive for quite some time, and then really observe and see how the, the data unfolds from there. And so while the market has been romancing this idea of the Federal Reserve starting to cut at the tail end of 2023, the Federal Reserve, at least for now, is likely to continue to keep rates on hold for an extended period of time and not meet the market's expectations for rate hikes as soon as the market is expecting. Bob? Yeah, David, I wasn't confused at all. Actually, for the first time, I think the Federal Reserve and the labor data confirmed what the average investor, the average consumer is seeing. The Federal Reserve could have walked in and said inflation is nowhere near our target. We've got to raise rates indefinitely and push Fed 
rates expectations much higher, maybe the terminal rate to five and a half, even five and three quarters percent. Instead, they came in and said what I see, which is inflation is moderating. We can see an end to rate hikes. They confirm that. You look at the jobs data, and yes, it was a very big number, but how many times have we been here and we've said, Everywhere we go in the services economy, there's a shortage of worker. You look at airports, you look at restaurants, they're complaining about not being able to hire enough workers. And this confirmed that. This labor, for, this labor report confirmed that the economy has shifted consumption from work from home sort of expenditures to things that are more services, travel and leisure. Aaron, what about that? Because that's one of the things that struck everybody, that you added so many jobs, got tighter and tighter in the labor market. At the same time, actually, the wages came down a little bit. Where is the wage pressure, and is it coming, and when? Well, I think part of it is a mix shift issue, and we know that average hourly earnings does have some distortions with respect to the mix shift. And so looking at ECI, Atlanta wage data, is probably more appropriate indicators. You know, that said, I do think that there is continued pressure, particularly on some of the services um, side, and particularly some of the areas that Bob mentioned with respect to leisure, travel, transportation, which saw some of the you know, significant job gains this last month. Um, that said, you know, we are starting to see peak inflation on the wage side. We are starting to see measures of inflation start to move lower with respect to wage growth. And I think that that's likely to continue as we move through, you know, the course of 2023. We'll still see wage gains, but at a slower pace. And I think that's what the Fed is really keyed in on in terms of, you know, setting and determining their policy. If they continue to see wage growth move lower, um, which we're starting to see, that will allow the Fed to eventually back off and, and really pause. And so I think that's what the key thing to watch is, is the pace of wage gains, which is slowing from here. So, so Aaron, I pick up on that very point, because I think most people agree, certainly Jay Powell said, we're starting to see some disinflationary forces. We're starting to see some of the inflation come off. But there's a question about whether that's going to continue, as you suggested, or whether you're really going to be able to get it down to anything like 2% without a lot more increases on the Fed. So I, I don't think the Fed is likely to hike rates, you know, significantly higher than here. I think one additional 25 basis point hike or potentially two is probably the most that's in the cards for the Fed at this time. And then they're going to sit and wait. And, you know, we all know that Federal Reserve policy, you know, moves with variable and lagged effects. And so I still think that the Fed thinks that, that the effects of the tightening last year will still continue to make their way through the economy uh, this year, and therefore, you know, there may not be future rate hikes that are necessary. But uh, you know, I think that they're willing to to wait and see whether or not future rate hikes are, are necessary after another one or two hikes. And so, you know, I do think that the Fed right now, you know, does expect that there, there at least not there's not significantly more hikes that are necessary. And as a result of that, they're, you know, willing to take a little bit of a wait and see approach. You know, that said, um, you know, we have seen some disinflation. We'll likely see more. But to expect that we're going to move, you know, close to 2% by year end, I don't think, you know, many are expecting that. And, you know, I think that at this point, 
the Fed will think of anything less than 3 percent, uh, you know, in terms of core PCE inflation as a win. So right. I think that's the number to be looking for, not 2 percent. It's really sub 3 percent. Bob, last, one last one to you on this subject, and that is what do you expect the Fed to do? And number two, what are the bond markets anticipating? Those could be two different things. Well, we expect. I think the they are two different things. Oh, Sorry, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. So I, I agree with Aaron. The, the Fed is setting us up to do one or two more rate hikes. And as she said, they pause, they wait for the cumulative and lag effects to hit. Our analysis shows that from the last rate hike until recession, it's roughly a year. So you're going to have to wait out several quarters to see, are you going to have that mythical soft landing or are you headed into recession? The market is starting to front run that. We've all done the work. We know at the time of the Fed's last rate hike, that's the peak in yields, and things rally like crazy, particularly the front end of the yield curve. That's what we're seeing in bond markets. Absent today, we think that's what we're going to see going forward. Okay, thank you so much, Aaron Brown of PIMCO and Bob Michael of J.P. Morgan. They're going to be staying with us as we turn to some of the other big issues out there for the markets. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The market has disappointed the bulls. It has disappointed the bears. It has been, if anything, a cat on a hot tin economy. Those who believe against all the evidence that the market is always efficient, sophisticated, and prescient may have a little trouble explaining the last two weeks when the market first soared in its best day in 10 months and then two sessions later panicked for its worst day in five months. 
That, of course, was Louis Rukeyser on Wall Street Week back in February 1982 when the number one movie was on Golden Pond and the top song was Centerfold by the Jay Giles Band. I have to say, people have to remind me what that song was, but I remember it now. Aaron Brown of PIMCO and Bob Michael from J.P. Morgan are still with us. So let me start with you, Bob. We've talked about the central banks. We've talked about jobs. I don't know if we have a, a market on a hot tin economy. Isn't that what we just heard <laughs> from Louis Rukeyser? But apart from the central bank, the central bank and apart from the jobs numbers, what are the things that you're looking at there, at there right now that could affect investors? Well, I think that's a very good clip to go to because that's a reminder of the era when the Fed declared victory on inflation too soon and then had to go back and, and raise rates again. And for us, that's the biggest risk that that happens again. We're looking at a number of things. I think the one most recently that's occurred is China is reopening. And suddenly you're going to have a billion for consumers out there consuming. That's twice the size of the U.S. and Europe put together. That could create a lot of pressure on the price of goods and services. The other thing out there that we're very mindful of is that the U.S. and Europe got away with a very mild winter, and that kept energy prices low, as did releasing the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So, Aaron, what about it? Those are two very interesting risks. One of them is that, that inflation is not going away. The Fed will actually have to keep raising, or after pausing, have to raise again, maybe because of China. How big a risk is China in terms of inflation? I think that China, with respect to global inflation and particularly developed market inflation, is actually going to be quite small. The, the way that we think about it from a growth perspective, it probably has about a 0.2 percentage point increase to U.S. growth and maybe 0.3 percent increase to European growth just because of the trade effects. And pretty similar impact to inflation, albeit potentially even a little bit smaller than those impacts. And that's because, you know, typically in an environment where you see China growth really rebounding, those tend to be the typical effects to growth and inflation to global developed market GDP and inflation. This time around, it could be even a little bit smaller given the fact that the reflation story and the and the growth story in China is going to be really centered in domestic growth drivers and more service reopening drivers rather than what you typically see which tends to be more investment and infrastructure led so this time it's going to be really focused on travel getting back to work getting back to you know typical service oriented economy which is very domestic China focused it probably has a bigger impact in to the region than the you know region and sort of the countries closest to China rather than to the U.S. and into Europe and to more developed market economies um, in the Western world. And so I think that the effects are going to be good for, for China, good for maybe Korea, for Thailand, to Singapore, to Hong Kong, but, but not as strong as a driver for growth and inflation you know, in the U.S. or in Europe. Although we did see the price of copper shoot up pretty smartly once China started to reopen. So they're out there competing for the re same resources that the Western world is now. That's inflationary pressure. Bob, what about broadly? Uh, to what extent do you take into account emerging markets in your decisions about bond investing? We're going to have Rashir Sharma on 
on in a few minutes here talking about India. Is that a factor in making investment decisions, Bob? It's, it's an enormous factor as we look across bond markets. We've been very impressed with the emerging markets. We like to track the cumulative number of rate hikes since the start of 2021. The developed markets have done close to 4,000 basis points. The emerging markets have done over 22,000 basis points of rate hikes. They got in front of this. They raised rates. Real yields are high. They slowed growth and inflationary pressures. We can go into those markets, get high real yields. And you know what? We do think the dollar has topped. It will come down over the balance of the year. That's a pretty nice tailwind to local emerging market debt. Aaron, I think I cut you off. No, what I was going to say was the biggest driver for inflation, particularly in the U.S., from a commodity perspective, tends to be energy. And we've seen, even since the China reopening, which started in early in early October, we've seen energy prices come down, you know, fairly significantly, and gas prices also fall pretty precipitously as well. So, while typically you would think that if it was going to have a significant commodity impact from China reopening, you would see that occur in, in energy costs, we've actually seen the opposite occur, which is why I don't think, you know, just looking at the data and looking at what's transpired and looking at how China is reopening and the, the sectors that's going to be impacted, I, it's why I don't think you're going to see a huge, you know, sort of impact to inflation from China reopening. Uh, I hope that's right. I hope the Fed engineers a soft landing, but China is going to be out there consuming and spending. And we also have to look at your Europe did not go through the pain that we all feared over the last several months. That's put them in a much better position to consume as well. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you so very much. It's great to have both of you back with us. It's always a treat. That is Bob Michael of J.P. Morgan and also Aaron Brown of PIMCO. Well, this week was hedge fund week down in Miami, and our very own Shanali Basak went down to report on this really important event for hedge funds. We welcome her now to Wall Street Week. Great to have you, Shanali. Glad you were down there for it. So uh, talk to the smart long-term investor who's looking at their portfolio. Uh, why, do, why do I need hedge fund in my portfolio? I mean, it looks like some make money, some lose money. And, and as a whole, the industry has lost more than $200 billion last year. So it's not like the hedge funds at large are doing so well, but there are a select few that have had some of their best years in history. Take Citadel, for example, which not only had $16 billion in profit last year, they surpassed John Paulson with the greatest trades ever. Uh, and so single trades as well as uh, larger funds have had amazing years. But what strategy, I think, is what you're asking here? What, what is a hedge fund? I want to take a listen here really quickly to Nassim Taleb, the black swan author who is famous for navigating these types of events. Because even in 2022, Universa, the fund that he advises, didn't have a favorable year. But this is what's ahead, as what he has to say. We have more debt than we ever did in history. We have the weirdest valuations in history. And we have a lot more connectivity than we did before. So add these things up and, and realize that, hey, you know what? Disneyland is over. The children go back to school and then make sure you're home. So now we're going to go back to the new world. 
It's a humbling time, but listen, I spoke to both Taleb as well as Jim Chanos, for example, who expects that over time corporate profits could drop another 50%. And so whether you're going short in the market, like Jim Chanos is known for, or whether you're buying options, like Nassim Taleb, or whether you're Cliff Fastness and believe that trend following will get you there, there are a lot of strategies that are coming back to the surface now. And at a humbling time, as you call it, we have a new leader at the top of the largest head fund, a new co-CIO for Bridgewater. Tell us about her. Yeah, remember Ray Dalio just stepped down from this post about four months ago, and he was co-CIO, but as he transitions, remember there are two new CEOs as well at Bridgewater that started early last year, and this is their new leadership team. This is a big change. It comes at a tough time, David, because remember I was talking about Citadel. You have Citadel surpassing Bridgewater as the highest grossing hedge fund firm of all time, according to LCH Investments. So Karen Carniel Tambor will take them into this new generation. She's only 37 years old, but started her career there being recruited there by Greg Jensen. Thank you so much to Shai Basak, who reports on all things Wall Street right here for Wall Street Week. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We are joined once again by our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, I got to start with those jobs numbers out on Friday. When they crossed, I actually thought maybe they were wrong. This is extraordinary. 517,000 jobs we're adding, given where we are already. It's a huge miss relative to the consensus. It's way out of line with what you'd have expected with uh, ADP. The labor market's running very differently than lots of other indicators uh, in the economy where you see some signs, particularly in manufacturing, of real slowing. So it's a pretty confused uh, picture. Uh, one idea would be that people are still worried about how much work they're going to get out of their workforces, given people uh, working at home, given increased absenteeism, given a variety of uh, post-COVID changes. And so they just feel that whenever they can get workers, they should take the opportunity. But it sure does seem like we have a lot of workers relative to the amount of demand we have or amount of production we have in uh, the economy. And the question is, is all this going to be income that's going to be spent, that's going to lift the economy up uh, a bunch? Is it going to turn out that at some point people realize they've got too much inventory and labor and we're going to see a fairly sudden stop? I think it's as difficult an economy to read as I can uh, remember. Uh, a year ago at this time, I was pretty confident about what the principal imbalances were and how things were going to play out. I don't have that kind of confidence right now. Can we have this sort of addition to the job market and not have wages go up more than we thought? They went up 4.4%. This is year over year now um, on the monthly, which was a tenth of a percent more than expected. But it wasn't that dramatic. Uh, are we going to have wage inflation kick in here that will really give us problems once again on monetary policy? David, that's a basic question. 
I went back and looked at the forecasting model emphasizing vacancies that I had used a year ago to predict that we were headed for significant wage inflation problems. And what I found was quite interesting to me. What I found was that that model is predicting wage inflation right now just about right. But it substantially underpredicted wage inflation in the latter part of 2022. So we saw an acceleration beyond what models would have predicted that uh, in 2022. We saw that, I now realize, with respect to wages, just as we saw that with respect to prices. And the central question is, we had some easy come, and now it's come off very quickly, inflation. And the question now is, whether that inflation is going to continue to decline rapidly, continuing the trend of the last few months, or whether the inflation that was never really predicted by models was, in a sense, ultimately transitory, but now we're left with an underlying inflation that's going to be much more difficult to have get out of the economy. And the difficulties you described, Larry, uh, sit right on the desk of Jay Powell, the chair of the Fed, from whom we heard, of course, this week in connection with their decision. Last week, before we heard from him, you were on this program saying it's what the Fed has is sort of like a car on a foggy night, and basically you got to keep the foot close to the accelerator and close to the brake. And this is actually what your friend and colleague Paul Krugman had to say, reacting to what you had to say. I mean, this really disturbs me to say this, but I think I agree with Larry. Yeah, we, we could... You know, we will get it wrong one way or the other, and uh, there's a reasonable chance in either direction. So, Larry, you disturbed your friend Paul Krugman because he actually agreed with you. But at the same time, do you think Powell did exactly what you were describing? Did he keep his foot sort of close to both the brick and the accelerator without going too far either direction? I think the Fed's doing a good job of portraying substantial uncertainty uh, in uh, the economy recognizing that it's going to be very hard and one's going to have to try to interpret the data month by month and that there are a lot of uh, surprises. I think they're having a difficult time uh, convincing markets on uh, their determination and with respect to the path towards the end of uh, the, the year. I probably still think uh, the risks that the two-part theory I just laid out is true and that the inflation reductions will be uh, transitory. I think that risk is greater than I think the Fed uh, thinks it is. I do still think there is the risk uh, that I've talked about earlier on the show of a kind of wily Coyote moment where firms realize they've got too much uh, inventory and uh, too, many, uh, too many people 
and that you see a more economy-wide turn to adjustment of the kind you've seen in the relatively uh, limited, in terms of employment, technology sector. But that's not, that's certainly anything but a confident uh, prediction. Uh, Larry, let's turn from the central bank, actually the executive branch, and the White House, where there's a big change going on uh, in the staff there. Ron Klain, the chief of staff, has left. Also, Brian Deese, with whom you, I know you've worked personally very closely. What do you think about their tenure, and as important, what does President Biden now need going forward? I think uh, Ron Klain as chief of staff and Brian Deese as head of the NEC have uh, very proud legacies they can look back on. This administration, with a very small set of margins in the Senate and in the, and in the House, probably passed more economic legislation in its first two years than any administration in more than two generations. There are, to be sure, real and serious issues with inflation, but I don't think anybody would have predicted an economy quite as strong as the one in the labor market, at least, uh, that we are seeing, uh, that, we're, that we're seeing right now. So they've got an enormous amount to be uh, proud of, as does uh, Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen who uh, will fortunately uh, be continuing uh, in her position and will provide, I think, some hugely important uh, stability for the, for the economy. But Ron Klain and Brian Deese should be and are leaving with their heads held uh, very high. And of course, one has to give enormous uh, credit to the president who relied on them to really push forward a set of uh, very bold uh, policies. Uh, and finally, Larry, give us a minute on antitrust. We've talked in the past about Lena Khan, the chair of the FTC, and her new approach to antitrust. She tried it out in court trying to stop, actually, Meta from making an acquisition of a small virtual reality startup uh, and was rebuffed by the court. What do you make of that? I'm worried about overambition in uh, antitrust uh, policy. This isn't the first or the second or the third time that uh, our antitrust authorities have lost in court for overstepping. I've heard stories that they are trying to ask so many questions about mergers, even when they don't think they're going to have a strong legal argument, the deadlines are passed and the mergers don't happen. Okay, thank you so very much to Larry Summers here, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Coming up, it's the country with the largest population in the world and the fifth largest economy. We talk with Ashir Sharma of Rockefeller International about whether investors should be taking a fresh look at India. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, 
a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, like, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. India, the fifth largest economy in the world, with more people than China, and as the head of the State Bank of India told us in Davos, it's growing faster. We are quite hopeful that this year we'll witness a growth of about 7%. And going forward, even next year also on the higher base, we expect the growth to be about 6%. India is benefiting from supply chain concerns with China. For too long, countries around the world have been overly dependent on risky countries or a single source for critical inputs. We're proactively deepening economic integration with trusted trading partners like India. And it's moving fast on everything from electric vehicles from companies like Tata. I think the EV transition in India is coming through very strong and very fast, much, much faster than what people are expecting it to be to the expansion of 5G. Our objective is by March 24 to cover the entire country on 5G. All of which is leading investors like Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors to take another look at opportunities in India. It does feel at the moment like India really is starting to uh, move forward for a whole variety of reasons, including China moving back. And so India is interesting on a number of levels. And to bring us up to speed on where India is today and where it may be going for investors, welcome now somebody who knows the country terribly well. He is Rushir Sharma. He is the chairman of Rockefeller International, also founder of Breakout Capital. Rushir, great to have you back on Wall Street Week. I mean, I hear a lot of talk about maybe India is the next China in, in, in terms of investment here, the next great opportunity. How, what's your reaction to that thought? Well, David, um, I guess this is a legacy of the fact that I've covered India now for nearly three decades. Uh, and my consistent observation about India has been that this is a country that has consistently disappointed the optimists and the pessimists. So this is not the first time that I've heard India being the next China. India will be India, which is that it's a complicated story. There are many nuances out here, and there will possibly never be a next China, uh, just because what China achieved over its uh, four-decade-long economic expansion, where it grew at a pace uh, of uh, nearly 10%, I think is something which we have never seen in history and we're unlikely to see ever again because an extraordinary set of circumstances 
and leaders brought China to the position it is. And as you know, that China has been reversing many of its policies over the last few years. Uh, so as far as India is concerned, I think that it uh, offers many great prospects, uh, but to project China on it is a story I've seen in the past. And unfortunately, I feel uh, that people who think that are likely to be a bit disappointed. Rashir, as you so wisely suggest, you really can't compare any two countries. Uh, at the same time, is there one parallel? Part of the reason for the amazing economic progress of China is they started from a very low base. Uh, and you actually caused me to go back and look at per capita uh, GDP for India, and it's something like $2,500 a year, as opposed to China, which is like five times that much. Does that offer actually an opportunity? Because there's a lot of headroom there. You can grow an awful lot. Yes. So I think that India in terms of because of its low base, will remain one of the fastest growing economies on the, in the world. It's been so um, over the last three or four decades, just that its success uh, has been overshadowed by what China has been able to achieve. But if you look at India's growth, it has consistently grown at a pace of about two and a half to three percentage points faster than the global economy. Uh, that's been the link. Uh, China's growth rate uh, during the similar income levels was far greater than the average of the global economy. India's average has been about two and a half to three percentage points faster than the global economy. It's consistently been that. And there's nothing to suggest that that's about to change. So if you expect the global economy to grow at about two, two and a half percent, which is what I expected to for the foreseeable future, then I think that India's growth rate is likely to be five, five and a half percent or so. Anything more than that to expect out of India is far too ambitious and something we have never seen uh, in its uh, post-reform history, which began in 1991. Thank you so much, Rashir. It's always great to have you with us on Wall Street Week. That's Rashir Sharma. He is chairman of Rockefeller International. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and this is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.